Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Marcus Meets, a show available via iTunes podcast for Apple devices or Acast, which works on iPhone and Android. Uh, you can listen anywhere you want by heading to marcusbronzy.com slash meets. That's M-A-R-C-U-S-B-R-O-N-Z-Y dot com slash meets. Please let us know what you think of the show by leaving us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps to spread the good word. Thank you in advance for that. Now, this is the Nihal episode. Now, Nihal is one heck of a talented broadcaster. He's worked in television. He's worked in national radio. And I was very excited to have him on the show. Now, just to clarify, when we are speaking about an incident that happened at an event called Jump Off, Nihal was in such a close proximity because he was actually judging at the time. So in case you're wondering, how was he so close? It's because he was an actual judge. So just, you know, just to frame it up, think of him sitting on a chair, judging a competition and then him reacting how he did. Now, the conversation between myself and Nihal started with us discussing something. Nihal had tweeted earlier that day that, um, I'll tell you what, I'll let him explain. Like I said on Twitter, I have to go to the vets to get my dog's anal glands drained. Now, three words that you never want to hear in a sentence is anal gland drained. Like that can only be a bad thing. There's nothing positive. There's nothing beautiful. There's nothing natural. Well, I guess it is natural, but you have to go. We've got a staffy yeah. called Luna. And I don't know, like once a year or so, a couple of years, she's getting older now. She, like, don't ask me to explain what having your anal glands drained is like, because I'm at one end of that. The dog, backside is at the other end of that and i'm not trying to look at what that entails all i know is that the vet puts a rubber glove on feels around a bit the dog looks at me like why are you doing this to me <laughs> it stops <laughs> and the dog kind of looks at me like i will never forgive you for this and then it's over i mean it lasts very quickly but some people on twitter replied to me going oh yeah uh, you know i've done that myself it's disgusting it smells terrible i was like why would you why would you do that like, why would you try and clean your own dog's anal glands? The t- like, I can't, I, like, I've, I, I'm just talking about it and I feel nauseous. The idea of actually doing that, I, clearly I was going to one of those Asians that was never going to go to med school. No, oh God, yeah, no, no, no doctor. I'm no, not that no, guy. No doctor behavior. I'm so not that guy. 
So how long have you been doing it for? I know this is just what training dog. anal. No, but no, 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 no. Uh-huh. How long have you been having to do this to to the dog? Like how? Um, what causes this? Do you know what, Marcus? I don't inquire. <laughs> I just know my wife. So you know about it's happening when the dog starts to drag its ass across the floor. Right. 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 So right. it's obviously got a problem. It's it's got itchy ass syndrome. Yeah. yeah. So itchy ass syndrome in medical terms, must be draining of the anal glands. Okay. So, essentially, when you see your dog dragging its ass across the floor yeah. uh, with its ears back, looking all uncomfortable, that's time you need to call up the vet and say, my dog's doing this, and then they go, oh, okay. But come and get those glands drained, homie. Bro. It's yeah. It's just it's one of those tweets I was just sitting there looking at my phone going, I don't even... Oh. Anyway. Um, that's what I said. Yes, comma this is a thing <laughs> right because i knew people like you and many people i know including the chef tom carriage he even tweeted me straight afterwards with wtf like what the he had never heard of this either and that, tom carriage like yeah. chops animals up yeah for food yeah. every bit of an animal yeah i'm glad that he doesn't know his way around anal glands yeah, yeah, what you yeah. wouldn't have wanted is him no. going oh yeah you know what yeah all the yeah. time all the time i that'd made a like, stew once yeah yeah, yeah that wouldn't be good but i um, mean yeah, congrats on the new show man mm. um thanks marcus five live talk, talk me through the new show by the way like so what so what's the crap of it well it's, <laughs> it's a difficult question because i don't really know yet because yeah. we haven't had the conversations as to structurally how it will sound what we're going for well we have an idea of what it is not going to be so it's not going to be what it was in that slot mm-hmm. because I'm co-presenting with someone called Sarah Brett and she has been presenting that for a few years mm-hmm. um, and she's been doing brilliantly at it. But the reason you bring someone like me on board is because I bring certain different vibe to it and that vibe has to come through. It has to play to my strengths, but I also have to learn five live strengths, which is much bigger audience, much more in depth, much broader in terms of kind of subjects you'll cover so when i covered that show which basically means when the main presenter beforehand went away i did a week of it and on the monday i interviewed the comedian paul whitehouse which from the the one show i'm oh, sorry the fast show and harry enfield and chums and you know like a legendary british comedian on the monday did a big long interview with him by thursday i was into in, interviewing the former greek finance minister Yanis varifakis about coming out of the eurozone and how greece's economy tumbled uh potentially it was going to tumble the world economy into turmoil just coming out of recession and there was the greeks saying we're not going to pay back this debt we're going to allow ourselves to crush out of the euro and then the troika was they were called of lenders to greece was saying well you know you've got to pay us uh, otherwise you're going to default and it was all this madness going on um and then he wrote a book about what it was like to be the Greek finance minister because he was the one, he was the rock and roll finance minister. He wore jeans and uh, biker jackets and rode around on motorbikes. And I was like, oh my God, look at this rock and roll dude. And it was interesting. So you went from Paul Whitehouse to him in one week and that will give me a sense of how big a show. Like for instance, I've already been asked if I'd be interested in interviewing Pele, right? But I can't wow. do it unfortunately because I'm, I'm filming somewhere uh, okay. so I can't do it. You know, already you get a sense that, wow, you're moving onto a big stage. Asian Network taught me everything about broadcasting. I learned to become the broadcaster I am, not by my 12 years at Radio 1, but actually by my seven years at the Asian Network. It really taught me how to deal with communication, how to really love language. Yeah. And 
to bring subjects alive, to be able to relate to that one person who's listening to you. Because in radio, never say plural to your audience. You never say you guys. You never say you girls. It's always one person, mm. one person in their earphones, one person in the kitchen, one person in a car, one person at the bus stop, one person on the back of the bus. It's one person always. And that taught me a lot, you know. And I'm going for 200,000 listeners on the Asian Network to 2 million on this show slot on Five Live. Five Live yeah. as a total has 6 million Massive, listeners. Yeah. So, you know, we're into the big leagues, you know, into the Premier League, right? So, yeah, you've definitely been flexing those broadcaster muscles on the Asian Network, like your current show. Um, to me, it's definitely something where you get into strong topics and you sort of, you, you jump right in. Yeah, I mean, today we were talking about whether attitudes towards baby girls being born was still similar over here to the attitude that prevails in India. Now, in India, the birth of a baby girl is not treated with the same joy that the birth of a baby boy is. Now, there's many complex reasons for that, but what we wanted to ask was, is it the same over here or has it changed over here? And the reason we're talking about it is because of a hospital in the Indian state of Gujarat. And you'll basically know Gujaratis because anyone called Patel is from mm. Gujarat, is from mm. that state in India. And what a hospital there had done was offer free medical advice and free treatment in a country where you have to pay for it if you gave birth to a daughter. So they treated you differently. So they had to incentivize you. They had to encourage you. They had to say to you, look, come in, have that girl. Don't abort it. Don't kill it when it's a fetus. Don't kill it when it's just been born. Now, this happens in India where you get newborn babies buried alive if they are girls. Mm. Because families can't afford to have girls. There's that in poor families. And then in more middle class families, there's just a discrimination because of the dowry system whereby a girl must pay for the wedding. So that means that poor families don't want to have girls because they can't afford it. And there was also this idea that girls don't contribute, girls can't go out into the fields, girls won't financially look after their parents, girls don't carry on the family name. So it's all kind of loaded against. And we had some shocking stories. You know, we heard today on the show of a man telling us about his daughter and his daughter got married. It was an arranged marriage. She was British Indian. She married a British Indian man who was a doctor. So a very good match, right? Mm -hmm. Asian family's happy with that. Yep. Marrying a doctor, all good. She gets pregnant with a daughter and her mother-in-law with the full knowledge and agreement of her husband kicks her down the stairs to try and force her to have an abortion because they don't want a girl. Now, this mother-in-law ended up getting 18 months in prison for this, and good. Yeah. And there still is this prevailing attitude in the Asian community that a boy is superior to a girl, that a boy being born is a reason for celebration, and a girl being born is a reason to feel sad. Now, that's, of course, not across the board, but it is still there. Um, I have a daughter, I have a son, um, and I love my daughter. My daughter and my son are completely equal, and that's how it should be, and we just want more of that to happen. Do you think having a family is 
does that has that given you a bit of extra oomph when you're when you're tucking into these sorts of serious things yeah i think marcus that's a very good question um and a very good observation because once you become a parent your worldview does change or at least mine certainly did because you see your kid's face in the face of all kids you see how a child has been battered or abused and you think of your own child they're happy secure loved spoiled in many ways in comparison so yeah it definitely does and it certainly having a girl has made me much more of a advocate for what i think should be normal things because as a person of color i want to be treated equally to a white person uh, a woman should be treated equally to a man of course yeah. um a gay person should be treated equally to a straight person these things are normal like this is not revolutionary like this is not me trying to put myself on a pedestal and say look how good i am i mean this should just be normal like why wouldn't it be yeah the odd thing is not asking for it the odd thing is the fact that it doesn't exist now i mean i don't understand why a woman would be paid less than a man for doing the same job mm. and how can that be a thing mm. how can it be a thing that you would discriminate against someone because of they're a different gender than you yeah why would you discriminate against someone because they're gay because they prefer people of their own sex or indeed of both sexes it's of no difference to me yeah and what's interesting is that it's it feels like it's I don't like a lot of people tell me it's getting worse, but I don't, I don't believe that that's the actual issue at the moment. Would you? What would you say to people that say that it's social media coverage is just helping to show more of what is going on? The fact that communication is deeper, stronger, easier than it than it ever was. Do you think it's a case that that's kind of showing more of what's going on instead of it actually happening more? You know, post Brexit, there's been the whole conversation about a spike in racism. Yeah. And you can look at that two ways. You can say that there's still the same amount of racists that there were before. They just feel a little bit emboldened and eventually they'll just crawl back under their rocks because they'll realise that the vast majority of British people, those who voted to leave the EU, were not racists. You know, it wasn't racist to vote to leave the EU. It's not racist to have issues with immigration. So... I'm an optimist. I'm always an optimist because I don't feel that there's any other option. Like, why would I get up in the morning and be a pessimist? I wouldn't get up. Mm. You know, why would you get up and jump out of bed and run downstairs and have an orange juice and go, my gosh, today's going to be shit. You wouldn't do that, would you? No, you know? so no, not at all. I, I wouldn't do that anyway. So I just see, I see optimism as an option. It's, I think, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I choose love because hate is too great a burden to bear. So actually choosing love and choosing happiness, choosing optimism is actually the easy route. It takes a lot of energy to hate. I once did a fly on the wall piece of the camera for Channel 4 in this documentary and I had to pretend to be a racist cab driver, homophobic, Islamophobic, and it was exhausting. It was absolutely exhausting, whereas me... Wandering through life thinking everyone likes me and I like everyone who's not an idiot. He's actually fairly easy going. I mean, like, yeah. it just takes no effort to do that. Maybe being nice is just lazy. Because maybe I should need to have a grudging respect for these trolls on Twitter that want to hate on black people, hate on Muslim people, hate on Asian people, hate on women, hate on gays. 
because this is that must be hard work. Mm. You know, being that much of a bell end is hard. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's actually easy to be nice. That's yeah. the easy thing. Yeah. You know, to spend your life subsumed by rage and anger and bile and negativity. I mean, there's a, a kind of grim admiration, I guess, you have for someone who can waste that much time being a complete dickhead. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of effort. It's yeah, a huge yeah. amount of effort. Yeah, but do you think maybe because you discuss such serious issues day in, day out, Monday to Friday at the moment, do you want some more water, by the way? Mm. Cool. Uh, since you discuss these things day in, day out, do you feel that that's why you're so, um, you, you have a very calming nature, even when you answer the phone, when you talk, you, you're quite a chill person, but there is a fiery side to Nihau. Like the jump off incident, uh, jump off is a massive event that brings people in from all over the UK and plays host to music, dance off, loads of entertainment, also a rap battle. Can we talk about the time you were judging one of these rap battles and what happened when one male contestant said something quite shocking to a woman that he was battling? So... Just to rewind a little bit, he, in a battle rap, said... It's like people are now thinking I'm fake. No sexercise, bitch. After this, in the alley, you're going to get raped. And the most interesting thing and the most optimistic thing about that night wasn't me and what I did. It was the crowd's reaction. That crowd who stereotypically... Anyone who doesn't know urban culture would look around and go, oh, my God, that's hood. Yeah. That's, oh, my gosh, this is frightful yeah. black people and darky ethnic people, um, and they're all misogynists and homophobes and da 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 They all, to, almost to a person, booed this guy. They made it very clear, straight away, off the bat, that this was not cool. This was not acceptable. And, and they made that clear. Now, yeah. that, I think, empowered me to a certain extent. And then when he said, Suck my dick, you do better, come on stage. And I was just like, What the fuck, you fuck idiot? Didn't you have a mum? Didn't you have a sister? Why are you so dumb, misogynistic prick? Talking, you think you're sick? You fat fucking idiot, rapping on this trick? Because I thought about my daughter. Like, I thought about my daughter. Firstly, mm-hmm. I thought about my daughter. Secondly, I thought about hip hop, which is a genre of music I've loved for 30 years, right? I've been into it for 30 years. And in that time, I've battled MCs, and I know there's places that I wouldn't go. And I don't think, because I need to be real with you, that MC, the female MC, she looked terrible. Like, she had a terrible haircut, she had dressed really badly. There's a number of things you could have dissed her on, and no one would have had any issue with that. You could have said that, you know, she looked like a, a busted tramp and... Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's so many things that, do you know what I mean? Like, you come to this, you come to this jam, but you flopped, you look like you bought your clothes from a charity shop. Like, yeah, I mean, there's yeah. loads of yeah. things you could have done. But you threatened to rape her, sexual violence against a woman? Like, I, I was like, you're, not only are you disrespecting a woman, but there's loads of that, and, and, and hip-hop and battles you can disrespect who you want. But you are, disrespecting hip-hop because a real MC would not go to that wouldn't need to go to that someone who valued the art would not need to have a cheap shot like that and and a violent one and a, a regressive one 
Mm. And it's quite interesting. There's a, a rap collective called Don't Flop. Yeah. And a few of their people started trolling me like hard for like days after that. As soon as it went viral, they were trolling me like you're a pussy. You don't know nothing about hip hop. And I was like, I remember Charlie Sloth reading these tweets and he tweeted, he goes, say whatever you want. There's no way you can say about now. Oh, you don't know about hip hop. This guy's an OG. Like you can't, mm. this guy goes way, way back. I was writing for hip hop connection in the nineties, interviewing outcast and, Snoop Dogg and all of these people. I've interviewed Grand Wizard, Theodore, Cool Herc, people that after these guys haven't even heard of the building blocks, the original OGs <laughs> of hip hop. So for me, it was like, well, you just think I'm that guy from Radio One and you think I'm a new Jack. You think I'm new to this. You think I just jumped up on stage. So it was quite interesting. It, they're predominantly white, these MCs, and they were trolling me. And I remember them saying, anything goes. So to one of the white MCs, I said, okay, would you use the N-word? And he went, no, of course I wouldn't. I goes, well then, clearly you have your limits. Your limits just happen to be different from mine. Mine are, you don't talk about raping. And I remember one of the MCs said to me, as way of kind of him trying to gun me, that, but in my own rap, I, I once put, oh no, check this link out. So I checked the link out. And in this rap, he'd looked at this person and he'd gone, you're so ugly, I'd rather fuck my own three-year-old daughter or something like that, right? And he thought that was a way of gunning me. And I went back to him and I went, how dare you disrespect your own child, your own daughter, to talk about her, who should be the most precious thing in your life. Mm. To be, like, What kind of man are you that would do that? Like, how low are you? So you think in 15 years time, you're going to show her that and she's going to be proud of her dad mm. for saying that about another MC. Oh, you're so ugly. I'd rather fuck my own daughter, three-year-old daughter than fuck you. How is that even come, like, so your morality is so twisted and you can say, okay, there's no morality. So you won't use the N word, but you'll talk about having sex with your own three-year-old daughter yeah. in, in this, like your logic is so twisted. And, and I had about four or five days of them gunning me and people saying that it was a set up and, it, it was all kind of pre-staged and da da because it went viral. Yeah. Like, I think Worldstar. Yeah, it, it was everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it was everywhere. Yeah. Um, and it's a weird thing because um, that night, my wife always reminds me, it was a Monday night and I just came home and I went, oh, this thing happened. And I, um, this guy said about raping a girl and the first thing I thought of was my own daughter and I just thought it was disgusting. Mm. And I got up and I did it. And she went, oh, okay, that's nice, dear. And, <laughs> and we just kind of went to bed. And then over that next week or two. It's, it's so you had no idea that that no, was going to be the repercussions. No idea. Like no idea that that was going to be. And, you know, some people got me and said, you know, it was misogyny in itself because you stepped in when she could have defended herself. You didn't give her a right to come back at him. So therefore, and then in the way I, I was fat shaming the guy. So, well, you know. Talking about rape and fat shaming, you just uh, replace one bad thing with another bad thing. I was like, well, let's just be really clear. Calling someone who's overweight a fat fuck is not comparable in my book to him threatening to rape a woman. I, 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 you know, that's cool. If you want to set a chart up, if you want to do some market research, go ahead. But in, in my mind and in my life and in my moral, it, it's not the vibe. See, it's interesting that 
that whole moment brought all of that out the woodwork as well all these interesting people and i say interesting there's probably a better word i can use for that <laughs> but all of these types of people that had these these very out there views and you see you know how you just seem to be the person that can do that i don't know whether it's because of your journalism part i mean do you think that that's that's why you've got this skill where you can draw people out and have conversations with them whatever their opinion is do you know what marcus um i i like people and i i like talking to people you know on saturday night i was at a rave i sat next to these two girls and it was four thirty, five in the morning in hackney and um, we were a bit worse for wear, me and my mate, because we'd been out on a night, originally 12 of us, and by the end of it, it was two of us in a rave in Hackney. That's what we like to hear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're like still doing it, mid-40s, still on it. <laughs> and, um, and these two girls sat next to me, and they were talking, and I went, it's really nice to see, like, like I said, my wife and her best friend, you remind me of my wife and her best friend, like two girls out partying, having fun. She went, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we started talking. Within five minutes, I knew that she... It mostly like girls, but now she'd met this new guy. She'd been with him for two years. She, um, you know, had to explain because she was of a Caribbean background. You know, uh, she never thought she would settle down with a guy. She'd always like girls. You know, I just, this, you know, within five minutes, we're having these conversations. This happens all the time because one thing, and one day it will get me in trouble. As you got me in trouble once, um, <laughs> is you kind of forget. That in the job I do, I ask questions that most people wouldn't. So that becomes your normality. Definitely. When when did it get you in trouble? Um, I, I started having this conversation with this guy, this cab driver, old fella. And um, I kept asking him about politics, about, you know, what you know what does he think? And da, da, da. He said, oh, what do you do then? And as soon as I said BBC, he went nuts. <laughs> what do you want to know? Why do you want to know for? Who are you talking to? Are you recording this? Like, wow! It just went like super paranoid, super paranoid. But the thing is, in school, I remember, I was kind of renowned as the guy who talked myself into trouble. So, if I remember, I got into a little bit of trouble um, because we got into a little kind of gang thing, and um, and rather than me just kind of diffusing it. I just couldn't help but take the piss out of the bloke, which meant that he had no option but to have to fight me because I'd just kind of humiliated him so much. I mean, with one of the Towie girls, we were outside a club in Essex and, and I was with a few of my pals and they're a bit lively and they're, you know, they're ex-army and ex all kinds of madness and they're big lads and I'm obviously not a big lad. I'm not like you, Marcus. And, um, and, and I remember this girl being really mouthy and she'd had quite a bit of work done some of those Essex girls have done. And I just said, I hope you kept the receipt for that nose. <laughs> and, that, and then it all just, yeah, exactly. And it all just went. All, and I couldn't help myself. It was as if I was saying it in slow motion. Yeah. And, and I remember just really just gunning these two girls, um, just taking a mickey out of them. Cause it was a bit, it just felt like sport really. Yeah. And then one of their boys came up and went, you want to shut your, you know, effing math, bruv, yeah. you want to do, do that and really kind of rearing up against me. And then all I remember is him kind of looking over my both of my shoulders and then walk, stepping away like this. And then I look round and I, there was literally about four or five <laughs> of my guys and, they, and they're all units. And, yeah. and then they're just standing there going, is there a problem? And the guy's like, no, mate, it's no, no, it's no, it's yeah. no problem at all. None of that, none of that. But then also at school, um, one thing that I figured out pretty quickly was if someone called you a packy, you would have to punch them. 
because that way, even if they beat you up, and you'd have to hurt them in some way. Yeah. So whether you're going to pull out parts of their hair or you're going to scratch them or you're going to bite them, you're just going to go nuts. Like you're just going to have to go nuts. And that meant that it wasn't all mouth. Like people knew that I would never start something, but if someone wanted to start something, I, I wouldn't shy away from it. So I, I wasn't going to be that Asian that a lot of people thought Asians were. Mm. And I realized that was this way to survive. That and, and networking almost. So who is the hardest guy? Who is the craziest guy? Right. Let's go and work out what they're like. The journalist in you working out early on. Working it out. I, I know. How often would you hear people calling you that though at school? Like how well, often was that an occurrence? Well, you see, I'm in my 40s. So I was at school in the 80s. So it was, it was a lot. There was mm. a, uh, for, for anyone who's in their 20s and 30s, there were these things called skinheads. And skinheads were essentially, it was fashionable to be racist. So they had a uniform which was uh, tight jeans, Dr. Martin's boots, a green bomber jacket, usually a check shirt, maybe a Ben Sherman, and all their hair shaved off. You know, all their hair shaved off. So skinheads, they were called. And they were openly racist. Like, openly. They just walk past you and go, you packy bastard. Like, Crazy. no way. Like, and it was just like, they were kind of empowered. So they, now you see them, they're the kind of people that rip their hijabs off. Muslim mm. women and spit on Muslim women and go to EDL marches and Britain first and all BMP and all those idiots. Mm. It's those people. But there were loads of them. There were loads of them. And I went to a state school. I didn't go to a posh school. I went to a state school in Essex and I was one of maybe 10 Asians in a school of a thousand kids. So, you know, you, you, firstly you clubbed together with the black kids because the black kids were having none of it like you called them the n-word they were going to bang you out like no doubt about it so it was make an alliance with them hang around with them because that was the backup you needed and if it came on top you were good you know but one thing that i've always always realized marcus is for every white person that called me a packy there was at least 10 white people that would I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
kick the hell out of them for doing it. You know, right. white British people are good people, tolerant people, much more tolerant than Asians are <laughs> of each other. And, and I say that from experience. Mm. You know, I grew up around white people. I know mm. how tolerant white people are. I was welcomed into the homes of my friends, you know, who were living in council estates. And we would go and we would break bread with them, white, more than Asian. Mm. So I know what, and that's why I judge nobody on their color. Being brown or black makes me no more likely to think of you as an immediate friend than if you're white or Far Eastern. If only everyone had those values. I wish. I wish, eh? Well, so, um, you know, yeah. it's not difficult. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's not for some, but it is for others for yeah. a multitude of reasons. So, being a young Asian gentleman in Essex, mm. how did you discover your love for hip hop? Because hip hop rescued me from racists. Because suddenly, whereas it was kind of cool to be hard and white and a skinhead and a bit nasty to people, suddenly it was cool. Fashion's just changed. So it was cool to break dance and, and rap and do graffiti and DJ if you could afford turntables, which you probably couldn't at school. And who were the big people doing that stuff? Brown people. It was black people. It was African-Americans and Hispanics doing that. Suddenly it was ethnic people that were doing something cool. And I was on that wave and I just discovered that I could MC, freestyle MC. It was an art that I kind of discovered, started off by writing rhymes and then actually realizing that, could, well, because of laziness again, it was just easier to freestyle than it was to sit there and spend all that time writing rhymes. And that meant that you had a particular skill that crews wanted. So they had their DJ, they had their break dancers, they had a good graffiti, but they didn't have an MC. Oh, that dude, like, he can MC. MC Crazy A, as I was called. Uh, like typical crazy A like, yeah 80s kind of name what, what, what was the A for Arthur Nyker my son oh, okay. oh yeah. yeah oh yeah obviously yeah, 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 yeah Arthur Nyker yeah, crazy so A. that was the only thing that you would get you would have all these kinds of names Busy B and all these names with with, with uh, consonants or vowels at the yeah. end yeah you, I used to love that you, yeah. yeah you always needed the vowel or yeah. the consonant at the end yeah exactly yeah. Yeah, that was you done and A was a good yeah. one because everybody would be crazy well, yeah. it's crazy there and crazy yeah oh, no, yeah it's no, crazy no. T crazy yeah. D crazy C <laughs> oh it's crazy A um, so I guess in the rapping telephone book I would be first yeah I'll, yeah good good option <laughs> I know <right? laughs> good option um, yeah. and yeah oh, you obviously you, uh, you you were rapping in a crew for a little while as well weren't you yeah um, how did you meet up with Collapse Long? So they reached out to me because we were all from Essex. We were all from Harlow. And they said, oh, you know, you rap. We're doing this guitar rap track. Can you just come and lay the vocals on it? I was like, yeah, cool, cool. cool. Let's do that. I think it was just a one-off because as a rapper, British rapper then, it's not like now. Like you could never be a millionaire doing that 30 years ago. There's like no way. Even 25 years ago. Actually, 15 years ago. I mean, pre- Boy in the Corner, really, Roots Maneuver, pre that, I mean, what did you have? You know, it was, no, Nothing beyond the raves and, and, and pirate radio. Yeah, nothing, exactly. Nothing, yeah, you know, yeah. but to be a tiny, you know, who is a millionaire, it's crazy. Whose house did he buy? The other, he's got Alex, Alexander McQueen, that's Alexander right. McQueen's old yeah, place. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing for... And I feel so immensely proud about that because yeah. when I was working in the music industry in the mid-90s, early mid-90s, you would always say, 
British black music, you just can't get arrested. Like, you can't sell British black music. No one wants to buy it. They just want to buy it. If it's black, it's American. Mm. And okay, there was different bits. There's a Soul to Soul. Jazzy B made a difference. And Loose Ends made a difference. But then there were other amazing, the late, great Lyndon David Hall, you know, who had a brilliant voice, sexy Cinderella tune. But no one really cared, you know? And then a white guy doing it, Rick Astley comes along with pop songs, and it was like, <laughs> oh, white soul, brilliant. You know, so... It was really difficult then, you know, and I, I, and I figured that out pretty quickly. So you would just go and do bits where anyone asked you to do it. You'd go, okay, I'll just do whatever because yeah. something might come of it. And something did come of it with Collapse Lung. You know, suddenly they just became indie darlings. You know, the enemy loved us. Joe Wiley played us on Radio 1 when Joe Wiley was like the biggest thing mm. in alternative radio. We played festivals. We toured the country. And Collapse Lung was a thing. You know, comedians like Mark Thomas and Phil Jupiter, Mark Lamar would come and see us play. And it was an uh, exciting time. And that was like 93? Mm. So like 23 years ago. This is well before the Nevermind the Buzzcocks iterations yeah, of these yeah, same people. <laughs> them one, or before them ones, you know. It was, yeah. it was just out there, you know. There's a, a video clip on YouTube of me in Collapse Lung performing a track called Chainsaw Wedgie. Right now it's time to receive a Chainsaw Wedgie from Collapse Lung. Yeah. And uh, it's so mad sick because we were like a guitar rap band. So we look kind of a bit punky and a bit alternative. But actually I was a full-blown hip-hop head. But it was great with Collapse Lung because it opened my mind to Nirvana and Radiohead and started listening in those early 90s, mid-90s, to all these guitar bands as well as listening to the hip-hop I was listening to. And you think that opening up kind of helped that transition into Radio 1 when that finally came around? Because yeah. it's, it's playlist, obviously, is, is I'm a, pop. You know, I'm a different kind of Asian, right? <laughs> I'm a different kind of Asian. I'm a left-field brother, right? I'm not that guy that was going to Bollywood raves and Bhangra and all that. It's nothing to do with me. I have a, you know, I've, got my tats and I've I've grown up around mostly white and black people that's not to say I'm not Asian of course I am just look at me you know I go to Sri Lanka every year and I'm very much in touch with who I am Sri Lanka but I'm very confident in who I am yeah like I don't feel conflicted I don't say oh god I wish I was this and what was that my parents brought us up to believe in being here so for me it's always been easy to to glide into situations and to talk to different people and appreciate different mindsets. And part of that is, is also kind of having multiple personalities. So, you know, you're one thing in a certain sphere and you're another thing in another sphere and you're another thing in another sphere. And it's taken, that's taken the longest time to kind of really go, okay, I don't have to be what I think other people want me to be. With regards to being a broadcaster, You've, like, you, you know, you, we've already, we've already spoken about your journalism, so you've written about music, you performed music, you're then on Radio 1, so you're meeting, you know, you're one of the largest, largest stations in the world. Um, how was it having a skill set that could work on specialist radio? You've, also, you've mentioned different sides, but also working out and growing as a broadcaster with 
I'd say more speech and daytime radio as well. How was it developing those skills and talents? Or how do you feel now at the other end, knowing that you've got this plethora of skill? Do you know what? I just genuinely, I feel like there's no other broadcaster with the breadth that I have. There's no broadcaster who can direct message a former cabinet minister and a grime MC on Twitter and have very meaningful conversations and deep conversations about both things. So it just meant that, I, you know, I'm not sure I ever really felt, there was only a couple of years when I ever really felt valued at Radio 1. Over that 12 years, it's probably, probably a third of that where I felt kind of valued. Why is that? Because I think, I think that Radio 1 takes a lot of its specialist DJs for granted. That's not important as the showbiz daytime DJs. And when I started doing daytime and specialist, I suddenly noticed the difference. And okay, it's bigger numbers and it's... But actually, I think if you're clever, you'll understand that it's the specialist DJs that bring the coolness to Radio 1. 100%. You know, it, so for me, every year there'd be a Christmas party and you'd walk in and all of the DJs would be there. And I'd never feel part of that. You know, I never felt part of that. I always felt slightly like there's nice people there, there's big egos over there. Where drunk do I people feel? over there. Christmas party, bear in mind. Very yeah. drunk people over yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, very <laughs> drunk people everywhere, in fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I actually felt much more affinity with the producers and the assistant producers and the broadcasting assistants. I had a much better time talking to them than I did to, like, my other DJs. I mean, who did I really like? I really liked Fern Cotton. I thought she was lovely. Yeah. Reggie was cool. Um, Vernon was cool. Um, and you know the, the leg- I love talking to Fab and Groove Rider and John Peel was there when we was there and that was amazing to be in the same with Giles Peterson I love wow. Giles Peterson yeah. I think of all the DJs at Radio 1 Giles and I had the most vibe about us and today like Toddler T I think is a really lovely guy I mean there's, there's cool guys it wasn't them that made me feel like I didn't belong in there it just maybe it was me you know, maybe it was just I just felt like this isn't for me, you know. Mm. And what's really nice about moving to Five Live is it's the first time um, where someone mainstream has kind of shown or told you that what you do is worth something. You know, when John O, the controller, in the press release said, you know, alongside Emma Barnett, who's also joining Five Live, the, the Daily Telegraph journalist, two of the most exciting voices in British broadcasting. You know, recently I was inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame, you know, at 44. And it was amazing to to be that. It was, you know, me and Frank Skinner was inducted on the same mm. day and Victoria Derbyshire on the same day. So, you know, to be that company in regard, you just go, okay, I'm that guy now. <laughs> you know, and it, it, I think that there is an element of trying to make you feel insecure about yourself because that's a much easier way to kind of control your ego. Uh, 
But yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I did ever really feel that valued. And, you know, it's fine. You said there were times that you did feel valued. Is there a standout time when you... Yeah, yeah. I, I guess, you know, when you're doing daytime and you're speaking to, especially when you went from weekend breakfast to weekend afternoons. So when you're in weekend afternoons on a Saturday and a Sunday, you're in the yeah. heart of it. You're sandwiched between Vernon Kay and Fern and Reggie. And they're big names, right? And you're there on that daytime. But ultimately, there's no fulfillment in that broadcasting for me. When I look back on that, I don't think I really got anything out of it. It was only really when I started doing the phone-in show on the BBC Asia Network that I really started to feel that I was home. And I made that decision that I wanted to do speech broadcasting because I didn't want to be a DJ in the clubs in my 40s. I just didn't want that. I didn't want to be getting in at five o'clock in the morning. I didn't want to be getting in with a tour manager and travelling up to different parts of the country on a Wednesday, Thursday night to play in a, in a club whereby I didn't really like it. I didn't really enjoy it. I'm privileged and it is a blessing to be able to do something I love. Mm. And on Five Live, I know I'm going to be able to do something I love. On Asian Network, I've done something I love. Doing my specialist show on Radio 1, I loved it. I loved it. But ultimately, the problem was there was no Asian scene. There wasn't. So those two hours really were just almost like a, tick box exercise here's two hours for asian people to do bhangra and to do so here's the beep we've done our do you know what and and that's not their fault Mm. because there are plenty of asians that did it but the asian a lot of the asian artists themselves were just happy to have that one play on on two hours on radio one and and bank their paris check but that's not what music is about music about if you look at stormzy's hustle stormzy doesn't need the radio to be who he is skeppy doesn't need the radio it's brilliant that it's there and it's brilliant that amazing DJs like Mr. Jam are there mm. to champion what they do. But look at them, they're self-generating empires. And I also saw that. I saw that actually, if you do speech radio, you can't Spotify a good conversation, right? You need people there to be able to get that. And also as well with Radio 1, the older you are, the less respect you have or the more pressure you feel because people start to question your relevance. Hmm. But in speech broadcasting, news, politics, the older you get, the better you are at it because of the amount of experience you have, because of the kind of conversations you can have, because of the, the knowledge you have accrued. I actually feel that my brain is more vibrant now than it has ever been in its ability to be able to pick out facts and read things and see and analyze. It's amazing. Mm. My brain feels more alive than it ever did in the first years of my broadcasting. Great. And, and you know, Manchester, we'll talk about Manchester in a sec, because that's a great part of the UK to move to. But mm. another thing about you, and and this is interesting, and, and you're, quite a, you're quite an honest person. You're very open. And the mm. fact that when you were still in the Radio 1 building to make the comments that you did about there not being enough diversity. Correct me if I'm wrong, by the way, Niha, if I say anything huh? out of way, but you weren't happy with the lack of diversity within the production team. So I just want to quickly say, unsung heroes, like the amount of work that the producers do to, to get the content out, they're obviously not taking away anything from the presenters, but so much work comes in for production. Yeah. But the fact that you could say that while you were still in the building, for me, that was another jump off. Whoa, I can't believe it. Oh, wow, I can't believe he's just said that, you know, and, 
you know, there were people that were talking to me saying at the time, oh my gosh, don't bite the hand that feeds you and stuff. And I was like, I saw it as more than that. I saw it as, 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 as very ballsy. And, and, and how did you gather the balls to just to say that? You know what? For the people who said, don't bite the hands that feed you, I'm not Oliver Twist. <laughs> like, I'm not going with a begging bowl. Yeah. And if those people are saying, yes, massa, no, massa, like, they need to fix up. Exactly. Right? Because we have a right as people of colour to be treated equally. And if we're not being treated equally, we have to say that. Now, I'm lucky. I'm not in my 20s. I'm secure in who I am. And I knew that no one could fire me for that because it would be even worse for them if they did that. And to me, what, I, what wound me up was how comfortable everyone felt about what a great job they were doing on the eighth floor about diversity. It's like, oh, look, look, walk around the eighth floor at the BBC. There's black folks over there. There's mixed race blokes over there and girls. There's Asian people over there and there's white people. Look at us. We are the world. We are like, whoa, let's just, let's just check this out for a minute. All the black folks are there. One extra. All the Asian folks are there. Asian network. Mostly the white folks are Radio 1. That's not diversity. That is silos. And that's the word I use. And that's the word that wound them up the most. So I said, this is silos. This is all the Asian people over there, all the white people. And I had these conversations where black people and Asian people felt as though they couldn't move. They weren't being given the chance to try new things. Now, at that point as well, when I made those comments, between the hours of 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., every day on Radio 1, there was not a single person of colour working in production or on air. This is just before Clara Ampho was announced. Yeah. Now, for a national radio station in a country where 15% of the population is ethnic minorities, I'm sorry, you cannot say you represent modern Britain and you're the entry point for people coming in to the BBC and, and you, you, it's all white people mm. in front of the mic and behind the mic. This is not dissing white people. This is just saying you need to fix up because you are not representing. What about the black and Asian people that pay the license fee? What about them? What, they don't get a shout? Oh, yeah, oh, sorry, they've got one extra and they've got... But what if you're black and you don't listen to grime? You just want to listen to Radio 1. That's yeah, one heck of a presumption, isn't it? Oh, you're black. You must you you like hip hop, don't you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like- it's, it, but it's true. And you know, it was a calculated move by me because I wanted to rattle them out of it. And you know, rather than and this is the point, and I think we all can learn from this. When someone says something that is blatantly a truth, just accept it and go. Okay, how do we make this better? Yeah. Right. Either that or you build a wall of pride around you, which is driven from your own ego and nothing changes. Now, there are some very good people at the BBC who are driving diversity and want it to happen. And the biggest champion of diversity that I've met at the BBC is Lord Hall. I I knew Lord Hall, Tony Hall, before he became Director General of the BBC. And we'd hung out. This is the guy who got the Sun newspaper involved in the Royal Opera House to do a discount on the front of the sun because he wanted people of different backgrounds to come to the Royal Opera House. This is a man who believes in diversity. 
he believes that there should be a wide talent base, you know? Yeah. But there are others in that building who don't. And there are others in that building, usually old people, who believe that diversity is like doing us ethnics a favour. Oh, we'll be nice to those lovely ethnic chaps. What they don't understand is, is that all the new model Beats One, Spotify, they're not thinking like that. They're thinking, who's the best person? They're not thinking, how do I get people that look and sound like me? They're thinking, how do I, actually the best people I've come across in business? And, and I know, good, I know CEOs of major companies. Mm. Without fail, most of them have said to me, I want to look around the room and see people who are nothing like me. One of the problems you get at the BBC is you look around too many of those rooms and they're all the same type of person, really. And that's actually more to do with class than it is to do with colour. Mm. How often do you hear a working class accent? You know, it's all very, very middle class. Was there a conversation that was had with you and, and management after you made number those of comments? conversations? A number of conversations. Yeah, a number of conversations about perhaps this could have been done differently. Why didn't we do it, talk about it internally? Um, and, you know, of course, there are going to be a number of conversations because it got a lot of, you know, it, once it goes in the media guardian, everyone picks up on it. You know, Radio 1 DJ slams because they want to give the BBC a kick in. Yeah. Right. And it was, I, I was on the, Diversity, and I still am on the diversity strategy board of the BBC. So me, Floella Benjamin, Lenny Henry, Dame Tanny Gray-Thompson. You know, it's a powerful group of people. George the Poet's on there. And Jason Roberts, the footballer. And it's a really powerful group of people that really do push the BBC as to what they're doing in terms of their targets, etc. It's a big organisation. But Lord Hall is taking it, definitely taking it the right way. And he gets it and he... He's passionate about it. Great. How do you feel about diversity now on, on Radio 101 Extra, do you think? Oh, and Asian Network? Um, I think that I would like to see more people of colour making the decisions. You know, I remember someone once boasting to me how they had, you know, black women on One Extra. I was like, I don't boast about that. You know, that's, that's like a fisherman boasting about catching fish. That's the job to do that. You know, Clara Ampho is something worth boasting about. To give Fern Cotton's old gig and to give that to Clara Ampho is an amazing statement. And I think that is powerful. But you also need to look up the food chain, you know. The guy who was running the playlist at One Extra has now left to join Spotify. Spotify, yeah. Yeah. Austin. Um, Austin, Austin, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's one of the few black faces, you know, in positions of power like that. I suppose that proves your point, right? That these companies will come along and, and just, you know, Dude, they're, they're great. Right. They're we'll not, have you. They're great. We'll have you. They're not, and, and, and you deliver, and we're good. You know, if you have got what we want, you're good. You know, my friend who's Asian owns a very, very successful PR company, super successful. And he's amazing. He's amazing. The contact, the people that he surrounds himself, the people he employs. He's not interested in colour. He's not interested in what school they went to. He's just interested in 
what is their vibe what is their buzz mm. people just want good now I, I like that i like i like moving in that direction yeah um well that that benef- that that benefits us yeah you know it benefits you, you more than me because i'm older <laughs> <laughs> well yeah we'll see yeah i mean i'm enjoying the turn of the times i mean this virile situation that's happening it's, it's july 2016 right now and the black lives matter yeah, black lives matter yeah. movement and it's um it's something that it needs to be addressed first it's it's it's, pl- it's playing on my mind a lot it's not something i like to discuss a lot because at the moment i'm just i'm disappointed i open my di- my timeline i'm disappointed at what i see and and um i hear about i hear stories you know that you've just told me about when you were younger and i'm like things should not be like this now but you know what marcus you know don't don't be a the pint's half empty kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because actually, do not let the fact that the idiots shout loudest make you think that there are more of them than us. There mm. aren't. Mm. There aren't. For every white person who thinks you are a, a black bastard, there is at least a hundred white people who go, that's my guy. Yeah. Right? So you can't let that one person yeah. dictate you. There will always be idiots in the world. Yeah. Listen, you go to the Caribbean and there are um, people from Barbados who look down on Jamaicans. There are Ghanaians and Nigerians who don't get on. Oh, believe I know about that. There, right? <laughs> there are Indians and Pakistanis who don't yeah, get on. Yeah. There are idiots in every yeah. race. We, trust me, when we, the reason that things annoy us so much now is because we're beyond the stage of us surviving. When our parents came here, they had to put up with that stuff yeah. because they were just trying to survive. We're not trying to survive. We're good. In that respect, we have a race relations act. We have hate crime legislation. Our parents didn't have any of that. So we can go to the police and go, now, you may not like that, the police, etc., etc. But there is legislation in place. We have opportunities the like of which our parents never had. Mm. Look at you. You're sitting in your own office. You're your own business. You know, our parents dreamt of that. And that in one generation, imagine what our kids will do. We're turbocharging ambition to our kids. So while, of course, police brutality in America, Mm. in America, of course, there was the Mark Duggan case here. But by and large, we live in times where there are opportunities afforded to us. That's not to say there isn't still institutional racism. Of course there is. There are more young black men incarcerated proportionately than there are young white men. But actually, the most educationally disadvantaged person in the UK is a young, white, working class male. The statistics will show that. It's not us. We have that immigrant drive. Look what a difference we see you know the first one of the apprentice was a black man do you know what i mean it's it's mm. insane nadia hussein wins great british bake-off wearing a hijab now if that doesn't tell you what an amazing country this is nothing well there are more reasons to be cheerful we just can't find them that's not to say that we shouldn't be angry about police brutality against african-americans of course we should yeah but you don't have to. You don't have to say save the whale 
and fuck the panda. You know what I mean? Of course. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you, yeah. you, you can be angry about these things, but equally you also have to find the sources of optimism. You know, it's my going back to my thing about getting up in the morning. Why would I get up in the morning mm. if I thought everyone's out to kill me and hate me? <laughs> yeah. You know, the day after Brexit, people were talking like the sky had fallen in. Yeah. Since Brexit happened a month ago, no one has racially abused me. And I've been to Manchester and I've been at a pub, a working class pub with my wife and children and gone up to the bar, chatted to a geezer at the bar, chatted to a couple of people there, like proper like hood looking <laughs> guys, you know, T-full busted, wearing an England football shirt, tracky bottoms, proper conversation, in with his pint, moving orange juice. Mm. The world keeps turning. Yeah. Now that's not to say that that racism hasn't spiked. It has. Clearly, the Metropolitan Police are saying that it has. But we just have to join and unite against those people, not assume that those people are winning because they ain't winning. Mm. They ain't. Definitely. And, and Manchester is a place, I suppose, you're going to have to get used to frequenting. <laughs> Move, moving My new up home there. as of yeah. next weekend. How's, how's the move going? Like, How's the preparation going for for being up there how does it feel do you know what it hasn't really sunk in you know today the guy who's been doing our dry cleaning for 13 years came around to, for the last time to drop off some dry cleaning and you know on friday i went out with a few of my boys and i, I work a lot so i don't get to see a lot of my boys but you know the, the streets i walk down the tube train i get on the shop i'll go in the manner that i know is not going to be my manner anymore and at 45, I've got to make a new manner. And that's intimidating. Can't lie, that is intimidating. How, how's, how's your daughter must be like excited about it though? My son and my daughter, son both daughter, of them, yeah. yeah, both of them are, they're excited about it, but they're also sad as well. You know, they're saying yeah. goodbye to their friends and they're going to a new place. And, you know, you have to keep telling yourself you're going there for such a great reason. You're going there for the career opportunity of a lifetime. You're going to a fantastic city full of friendly people, full of art and culture and history and music and fashion and all the kind of things that you love about London, but smaller, mm. you know? Definitely. Are you still going to be coming back to do your Asian Network show no. on the Friday? You're going to do it from there? Do it from there. Thanks. And that's important to yeah. do it from there. So now you said you're a busy guy. Uh, we have a brother podcast that we call How to Kill an Hour, which is yeah. all about killing time. Yeah. When you do get a little bit of time off, how do you kill a bit of time? Do you know I lie on the sofa and channel surf and just switch off to usually rubbish films. Like, I'm a guy's guy. Like, I want to see Bourne. I want to see... Like, my wife's like, why do you want to see so much killing? It's like, I was just action. It's weird because I guess part of me has always wanted to be that guy's guy but never really got round to it because a bit lazy. Like part of me <laughs> want to be that UFC fighter. Part of me wants to be that guy that will kind of walk up to someone who's being bad in a pub and, and say, don't talk to that person like that and take him outside and headbutt them. Part of me is wanting to be that guy. So be the action guy, but I'm not really that guy and I can't really be that guy. So I guess maybe that's why I watch those kinds of films. But I also, you know, I love, um, I love doing nothing. Because my life is so full of noise, so full of facts and opinions and ideas and culture and that I love nothing better than to talk to nobody and be in the house when everyone's out and it's super quiet. 
mm. and just go on to movie channel and go, okay, I'm going to watch Anchorman. Or I'm going to watch the Bourne Supremacy for like the hundredth time. You know, doesn't stop getting good. The Bourne films, the Bourne films they don't, never they don't, they don't stop being great. This is one thing my great. wife can't understand. Yeah. She's like, how many times do you watch those films? I goes, not enough. He's possibly my favorite action hero. Oh, Jason, Jason Bourne. Jason Bourne. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Just what a great man. What's the, what the, out of the first film? What's the best line? He goes, I can, I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. And I don't know why. Yeah, I'm just yeah, great. I'm like, I, I wish I could wake up like that. To be um, fair, they went through some pretty madness to get to that stage. And that's, yeah, that's, yeah, why, I, yeah. that's why I, I want to watch those films because I know I couldn't go through that yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my best friends was in the Parachute Regiment and was the youngest physical training instructor at the army when he was mm-hmm. 19. Yeah. And he's that guy. Like he's that Now he's a deep sea diver in oil rigs. But um, he's that guy. Does it change someone when they have that sort of level of training and, and awareness of their physical oh, capacity? What can what you not do? To do? Someone? What can you not do? What, what you know, I'll get up and do, oh, I'll do that tomorrow. Yeah. He gets up and does a hundred things. It, it makes nothing for him. How can someone like that ever not be successful? Crazy. Because they're just the yeah. focus, the d- discipline, yeah. and also unfazed. Mm. You know, he's never going to get into a road rage accident, incident. Because some guy will be going, blah, 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 and he'll go, I once, as a sniper, killed a drug dealer in Belize from like a thousand yards, took him out. So you barking like a puppy at me. Makes no difference to me. Wow. His frame of mind must be very interesting. Is it really interesting? Really enough on Friday night, we were having this conversation about killing people, mm. you know, and it was really fascinating because I introduced him to a mate of mine who's an extraordinary guy called Trevor Robinson. And I name him for a reason because he's the only black person to own his own advertising agency. So for those of you a certain age will remember you've been tangoed. Yeah. He was one of the, biggest advertising things you've been tangoed and he came up with that that was our black guy who came up with that you know and now he owns his own advertising agency and he's super successful and he's brilliant and he's one of my closest friends and he won an OBE actually Trevor Robinson OBE and um, he um, you know sat there with my mate who was in it Harvey and was fascinated by him he said I've never really met even though my pal grew up on a housing estate in South London and has been through all the hood madness you can imagine. Yeah. You know, and he's, he's a member of Groucho and, you know, he's, he's just that guy, you know, super cool guy. And he sat with my pal and they, they're, they're such a fascinating conversation. It's really interesting when you meet men who go to those extremes, who've done those things. You know, he was in Iraq in the first Gulf War in the 90s, you know, and saw, oh God, it's street. Like like Oxford Street full of dead bodies of dead Iraqi soldiers, you know. And those things are deep, you know. Yeah, it's interesting, Lam. Like, well, there's actually another another episode where I actually do get to have a conversation with somebody who's had a similar line of work, um, and he has to remain unnamed because he's not like he's not able to basically reveal anything about himself. And it's you're right when you meet people like that there are questions and or there are stories that they'll tell you and you know it makes you think wow i think i've seen 
I think I've seen stuff. Yeah. It's very interesting. But um, now I've taken so much of your time. You're going to be in Manchester. Yes. <laughs> by the time this comes out in a few days. Amazing. Um, so thank you for having a chat with me. And um, if I'm in the Northwest, I'll give you a shout. Oh, um, Marcus, 100%. And you probably will be, right? I mean, yeah, I'm doing Children's BBC stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so. yeah, I'll be up there. It's a great building, isn't it, as well? It is. It is amazing building and yeah. amazing people. And I'm. Um, you know, thanks for asking me, Marcus. That's a nice conversation. No, You've no really problem, no done problem. your research, which is good. Yeah, I did. Sign a of a good journalist. Did a little bit of reading, mate. Yeah, um, right. oh, oh, one more thing there. Yes. Now, so actually, yeah, I've got to ask you this, actually. So you've done everything from journalism, mm-hmm. specialist radio, yeah. speech radio now. Yep. Like you've, mate, you, you, you've done a lot of broadcasting. A little piece of advice for a young journalist or broadcaster that wants to be successful? Um. Be really interested in the world around you. Assume that, actually don't assume, know that you don't know it all. And, you know, I think the best advice is, is just be positive with everyone around you because people like to have positive people around them. You know, even to this day, if I can, I'll meet up with someone who's come out of university or I'll email them or I'll, direct messages in my email address if they want to ask some questions. It takes a while for me to get back to them, but I do it. Mm. And, and just always remember that. You know, Trevor Nelson gave me a great bit of advice. Don't look for massive peaks because there will be massive troughs. It's about a steady climb because you're in this game for the long run. And see ahead. Look ahead. When I was a PR guy, I looked ahead and said, in 10 years, I don't want to be doing this. So when the first opportunity came for me to really get out of it, I got out of it. When I didn't want to be a music DJ anymore, I looked for the opportunity and I got out of it. And it's worked out. And, and, and when I look back on those things, it's about constantly evolving, constantly making sure that people don't box you in. Yes. And I think, you know, you'll be good. The thing about you, Marcus, is that you're tall, you're commanding, clever so now what you need to do is understand that your differences are your positives people want me on five live because i bring a different swagger that comes from 12 years on radio one and then doing the asian network and having that way so every single day every single person you meet who tells you an anecdote and a story is something you lock away for future relevance and um Always do the meeting. Okay. Now, no matter how irrelevant right. it may seem, always do the meeting. That makes sense. You know? That makes sense. That's one that thing sense. that yeah. my mentor told me. Always do the meeting. All right. Thank you very much. Right. I, I must let you go now because... Thank, um, so, thank getting you very much. hot in here. It's, it's roasting. Uh-huh. Cheers. All right. Yeah, it was definitely getting hot in there. God, how wise were those words at the end? Definitely taking those on board and we'll be using those in the future. Always take the meeting um this especially if it's a meeting and i want you to be a guest on this show now this show is produced and hosted by a lovely guy called marcus bronzy thank you to the co-producers billy wright shane powell and david shawcross special thanks to milo fisher in research carl james wide awake aka cj beach and jordan crisp for the stings and intro music you can listen to Marcus Meets via iTunes for Apple devices or Acast, which works with every single phone I know of. If you're unsure of what will work with your device, then head to marcusbronzy.com slash meets to listen in any way 
that you desire. Now, Marcus Meets is made just for you, so we would love to hear what you think of it as well. Uh, As well as pushing the subscribe button, we would love your feedback in the form of a review, which you can do by going to marcusbronzy.com slash review. That's M-A-R-C-U-S-B-R-O-N-Z-Y dot com slash review. It helps us to get to more ears. And if you want to show us even more love, you can become a patron of Marcus Meets and get access to a whole heap of bonus content early uh, by going to marcusbronzy.com slash thanks. That's marcusbronzy.com slash thanks. I'll be back with another episode real soon. Cheers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.